Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Gil Pearl. Rabbi Pearl is the CEO of the Addis Family Foundation and the founding head of school of the Jewish Leadership Academy, which is a middle and high school opening in Miami in 2023. He is the former head of school at Kohelet Yeshiva in Marion Station, Pennsylvania, and he is the author of the book, The Pillar of Velozhin, Rabbi Naftali Svi Yehuda Berlin, and the World of 19th Century Lithuanian Torah Scholarship. Rabbi Pearl writes and lectures on topics including history of modern Jewry, contemporary Jewish education, and modern orthodoxy. Rabbi Pearl has a blog, gilpearl.com, and you can find him on Twitter at sign G Pearl. Hello, Rabbi Pearl. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for being with us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the, the time to speak with us, and what an amazing accomplishments that you've had over the course of your your life. Will you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and just how you began your journey in education? Sure. Yeah, I often tell people that uh, I'm an accidental educator. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to go into education. Um, it, it kind of just happened and, and happened in a rather circuitous fashion. Um, I, I became a head of school at the age of 29 with actually out ever having taught a day of elementary, middle or high school. Um, so it's not exactly the, uh, the normal trajectory. I got my start actually working in camps and, uh, there was a camp that I, I was working at and then became the program director and then ultimately became a partner called the Israel Basketball Academy. Oh, very and, cool. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. We, we would take kids to Israel for six weeks, play basketball, tour. And then when the first intifada, second intifada broke out, we um, we found a, a campus in the United States, and we were taking kids there. But uh, that was really how I got my administrative experience. Um, and then I um, I was pursuing my doctorate in, in history, in Jewish history, and uh, doing that over the summers. And to, to make a long story short, I, I found myself back in New York and, and in a position of, uh, I was teaching undergrads, but I also became the director of admission at Yeshiva University's High School for Boys. And okay. before I knew it, uh, director of admissions turned into associate head of school. And then um, the Marilyn Hebrew Academy in Memphis came calling and um, offered me the head of school position. And uh, it was uh, an opportunity and a community that really spoke to us. And um, we decided, my wife and I, my wife is also an educator, that um, we would, you know, that, that if we were in education to make a difference, then, um, you know, the difference we could make out there far exceeded any difference we could make in the New York, New Jersey area. And so we packed wow. up and moved. And that was really how... I got started at least in the world of education. That's so cool. So the basketball 
um, program that you were doing in Israel basketball. Um, what age group was that? Was it only boys? Was it mixed? No, it was boys and girls. Okay. And uh, I believe the youngest kids we had were coming out of fifth grade and it went through 10th grade. That is so cool. What happened with that program? Is it still in existence? It is not still in existence, sadly. Um, once we bought this campus in the United States, and then uh, we were there for a couple of years, and then I had to bow out because I needed my summers to write my dissertation. It was just becoming clear that there was no way I was going to finish if I was uh, if I was also doing that um, all summer. And so um, I believe it two or three years after I left it, it, it closed. Part of your journey. Yeah. And how long were you in Memphis? I was the head of school in Memphis for seven years. Are there any educators in particular that you admire? You know, when I think about educators that I admire, they're two different, two very different people that uh, that come to mind. Um, I've always looked up to and admired and actually have been the beneficiary of tremendous guidance and mentorship from Rabbi J.J. Schachter. Um, you know, he is actually, when I was trying to decide whether to pursue a doctorate in history at Harvard, I, there weren't too many people that I could reach out to who had firsthand experience with the program. And, um, and, and I wasn't sure whether to do it. I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to do Samicha also. I wasn't sure which one to do first. And I actually cold called uh, Rabbi Shafter, who at the time was the, uh, was the pulpit rabbi at the Jewish Center in Manhattan. And uh, I had never met him before. He didn't know who I was. And he was gracious enough to invite me in for a meeting. And he was actually headed up to Boston at that point also. Um, and we had a great conversation. And he, he encouraged me to go and to pursue the degree. And we have been close ever since. And I think that his way of, of looking at sources, his way of presenting his ability to speak to you know, such diverse audiences and inspire them and educate them has always been something that um, really deeply speaks to me. So that, that's one person. A very, very different person is uh, the music teacher that we had at Kohelet Yeshiva. Uh, his name is Sheridan Seifried, still the music teacher at Kohelet Yeshiva. And he may be the finest teacher that I've ever met. He, he doesn't teach material. He teaches students. And it's not a, just about what you learn in the class. And you will learn a tremendous amount in his class. But he will, he will teach you about life. He will inspire you. He's a role model inside and outside of class. And the number of lives that he has touched is just extraordinary. And he does it with tremendous humility. and. Um, He's really a, a, just an incredibly special educator. Wow. Yeah, you're making me want to enroll in the school here. <laughs> so It's wor worth it just for him. Well, we recently um, interviewed Rabbi Aaron Horn, also from Kohelet. Yes. So it's um, very cool to hear about the success that you guys have all experienced there at, at the school and how great of a school it is. We've heard some really great things. Thank God. It's a very, very special place. It's grown tremendously over the past couple of years, and it's, it's on track to continue that growth well into the future. So it's, it's been exciting to be a part of. So, Rabbi, how do you talk about Hashem? How do you talk about God, and how might this differ with the various age groups that you teach? That's a, it's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked the question, because not too many people are asking that question these days. Um, 
when in, in Kohelet, I taught a class to all 11th graders on faith. And I would start the class every year with an introduction, sort of explaining why we're teaching this and why we're teaching it now. And, uh, you know, because I know that for some of the kids, it's kind of like, why are you, why are we discussing this in 11th grade? I mean, like, you know, where have you been? Or it hasn't kind of that ship set, you know, sailed. Either, we, either we've got it or we don't. And, um, and I explained to them that I think that this is a, a real uh, lacuna in, in Jewish education today, which is that we, we talk a lot about God. We talk about Hashem a tremendous amount in the early grades. Um, you know, we all sing Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. And, uh, and it, it sort of surrounds us in the youngest grades, and then we stop. And then we take it for granted. Um, and we assume that every kid kind of ha- is, is grounded in that world. And, and at least in the schools that I know, it is very rare to come back to it in any sort of sophisticated way. And, and the problem, which I'm, I'm sure you recognize, this is probably why I'm sure you, you know, you asked the question is that what happens is for so many of these kids who are now young men and women, they go on in, you know, they graduate high school, they go on to college, they go out into the professional world and their knowledge of the rest of the world is now extremely sophisticated, extremely advanced. And their knowledge of God tends to, to be juvenile. It, it's what they, you know, it, it's the image that they had when they were in first and second grade. It's, uh, it's an old man with a beard. It's a king sitting on a throne. Um, and, and that often doesn't, it can't compete, you know, with their sort of sophisticated outlook on all other things. Um, and for that reason, you know, I come, I, I thought it was critical in 11th grade, particularly as kids are beginning to set their sights beyond high school and, Cognitively, you know, they're they're generally in a place where they can begin to to reexamine, um, uh, you know, younger ideas that they had and come at them with a with a fresh with a fresh perspective. And that's why I thought it was critical to do. Um, you know, how did we talk to? How did we talk about God in in high school in eleventh grade? So um, that course was less describing God. It was it, it's goal was to um, to offer our kids a pathway towards belief that there there is good reason to there is um, all sorts of reasons why one ought to and should want to um, believe in God yet I also try to get across to them that that pathway is a very personal pathway and, and the Torah wants it that way. I mean, the Torah is intentionally silent as to how Avram Avinu found God. You know, the Medrash comes in and fills in with all sorts of, of, of stories, and, and some of them are, are quite different in their nature. But, but the Torah text itself is intentionally quiet because it's, it's something which we have to find for ourselves. The problem is that all too often we take that too literally and we say, okay, we're not going to talk about this at all. But that's, that's not what our kids need. They, they need to be shown that there are multiple pathways, that there are different ways to discover God. So we look at, we look at pathways through science and history and study of the world. We look, through, we look at philosophical pathways. We also look, like, look at, at, at emotional pathways um, towards God and, and ultimately leave it for them to figure out which one speaks to them most and to show them that all of them have grounding um, in our Mesorah and in our tradition. Interesting. I, I really, yeah, I like that. 
Why do you think that in most schools we stop talking about God so much? Um, at least in the Orthodox schools, I can I can tell you that our our staff just isn't trained to. It's not part of their training. You know, if they're if they're a male um, and they have they have smicha, so they they're very well versed in in Gemara and in Halacha. Um, they may not even be that well versed in areas of Tanakh. If they're a female, they're probably better versed in areas of Tanakh, maybe in some uh, you know Jew- areas of Jewish thought, um, but not not they don't have the vocabulary or the skill set to to talk about God. God is generally something that is there for them. It's it's sort of it's it's inherent, it's ingrained, but it but they've never been given the skill set to know how to talk about it and. It's it's hard. It it they, it would make themselves very vulnerable if they would open up that conversation, especially without feeling like they have the tools to navigate that conversation. Right. So, education or chinuch in Hebrew can be an amorphous term. So, how do you define education? And I would I also want to add: um, Do you think that for Jewish education that God should be a central? Um, to that, not you personally, but in the in the Jewish education system. So I think, without a doubt, God needs to be part of of Jewish education. Um, I, Judaism without God isn't isn't Judaism, in my um, in my humble opinion. Um, <clears throat> there is Jewish culture and there is Jewish heritage, you know, certainly. But, uh, but but Judaism Judaism is a religion and it's a religion you know that that, that has got at its center um, and you know what is education education in my mind is about preparation for the future it's it's preparing generally kids but it can be adults as well um, for some next stage for whatever it is that, that they're going to do or want to do next um, and and I think this often gets lost I think that you know, all too often, we're, when, when thinking about how best to educate, you know, we're often thinking about the present or sometimes even the past, you know, the, how we experienced education and what education looked like when we went through it, rather than thinking about the future that our, our students are headed to and reverse engineering from there and asking ourselves, what are they going to need to best succeed in the world that they're headed to? And now how do we give them that set of skills? You know, and and those desires and and habits of of mind, habits of heart, that they're going to need to succeed in that world. And um, again, in, in my opinion, to to succeed, to be a successful Jew, it is to is absolutely to have God in your life, to have um, God play a central role in your life. And if that's the case, then it needs to be part of the preparation that we're giving kids now. You know, that's really important that you mention that because I do think we tend to get caught up and we forget that we should, we, our role is to prepare them for the future so that we have continuity and we help encourage our students to want to be lifelong learners. And I think sometimes we get caught up as educators in the minutia of the day-to-day and planning and this and that, that I think we forget that sometimes. Do you find that too? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's hard. It's hard because the, the rate of change in the world we live in is so rapid. 
and uh, nobody knows for sure what the you know what the future is going to be. Um, but but we you know you know we can't we won't get the full answer. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but we can't not ask the question either. And and I, yes, I agree with you. I think all too often. You know, as educators, we're, we're we're focused on the here and now. We're focused on and, uh, on the you know curriculum we're supposed to teach, and and quite honestly, I think that's what teachers are are supposed to do. I think it's our educational leaders, it's our principals and heads of school and and, and, and assistant principals, whose job it is you know to to take that time out to to think about the bigger picture, to think about where we're headed, and whether what we're doing actually is best suited for you know to preparing our kids for for where they're where they're going to be and where they're headed for. And if not, you know, what, what, what changes do we need to make? Right. So would you agree a lot of what happens in the the current um, Jewish educational system, it's preparing the students for, for professional uh, world, right? Um, I'm not sure that it's terribly vocationally focused. I think it's very much focused on getting kids into college. Right. Um, You know, certainly on the, you know, on, on the general studies side. Um, although I think the world of college admissions is we're in the midst of a sea change on that front also. So that's, it's going to be really interesting to see how high schools adapt. Um, but so I don't know that it's that professionally focused, certainly the Judaic studies piece, I think is not, is certainly not professionally focused. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure that it's skill sets of the future are really the ones that were, most focused on in most of our schools right now. Right. Well, it seems you mentioned before, you know, the world's changing so rapidly. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really important. We get, get that right. You know, um, in, in the early stages, um, make sure we're aiming for, uh, what we're aiming for. You're founding a school. What are some of the things that you've experienced over the years that you're going to hope to bring into the school that you're founding? Sure. Um, well, hopefully, hopefully, quite a few. <laughs> um, you know, our our school is going to the the curriculum in our school is going to be largely either project based, inquiry based, or um, Socratic seminars. So there's going to be very little frontal teaching, very little of teachers standing in the front of the class lecturing at kids. Um, it's going to be a lot more of, um, you know, what we call the, you know, the, the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. Um, uh, we are going to be looking or, for opportunities to um, have mixed age classes where we are appropriate to give kids greater flexibility. Um, a student choice is going to be a, a hallmark of our of our program. So um, starting already in sixth grade. Uh, students will will have some choices as the coursework they want they want to take um, because I believe students do you know you get the, their best selves when they have some ownership over their over their schooling and over their education they're not just told to go here do that um, <clears throat> we are going to be looking at you know, different types of assessment um, uh, we're also you know our our school is is very very focused on um, uh, creating the skill set and desire for community service. 
And um, that's an area where we're really going to hopefully turn things on its head in terms of what has traditionally been done in schools where community service is something that you kind of, it's a box you check and it's generally something you do after school um, on your own. And we are going to be actively making time within our school year to, um, to do it, where we're going to be teaching the skills necessary beforehand. We're going to be taking time out to actually do the service. We're going to be reflecting on the service afterwards so that it becomes a, a deeply ingrained part of their educational experience. Um, and we're also looking to, to focus on the experiential, particularly on the experiential side of Judaism. Um, our school is actually going to take the entire school uh, from 8th grade to 12th grade to Israel for the first month of school every year. Wow. wow. Um, yes, we're going to do school in Israel. And our bet is that um, by having the, an immersive experience in Israel for a month, we will actually be able to accomplish more than we could with an additional, you know, 45 minutes, a 40 minute class over the course of the school year. So for the rest of the school year, we're going to have less Judaics, um, but we're going to start with this kind of immersive experience in, which will include Ulpan, uh, Jewish history, Tanakh, um, on a five year, with a five year scope and sequence, you know, that is um, geared towards giving kids, you know, a full array of, Judaic studies uh, and immersion into Israeli society today and Israeli culture. Wow, that is really fascinating. I, I apologize for throwing that question in there. I know it was a hard question. I was just curious about the school that you're no, founding. No so, I mean, that's that's really cool, and we wish you Hatzlacha with that. Thanks. What's the biggest challenge that you face as an educator? It sounds like you have a lot of experience. That's going to sound funny, but I, I think that the biggest challenge I've faced as an educational leader, is that everyone has an education. Meaning, for teachers, um, they come into the educational profession with, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of experience. There's no other industry like it. Where your first day on the job, you have already walked in with, you know, 13 years of experience. Um, you know, nobody, nobody walks into a law office for the first time having feeling like they know what law offices should be like. And, run, you know, they've probably seen them on TV. It, but, um, but they have experienced law offices day in and day out for 13 or 14 years. But every educator has. And so they have a very fixed sense of what a school should look like um, because they went to school. And, and, and I think that's part of why education is one of the slowest industries to change um, because we have a very strong sense. And most teachers go into education because they liked school. Um, they enjoyed school. And so if they enjoyed school, they had a good experience in school. So their, their sense of what school ought to be very much follows the patterns of what they experienced themselves. Um, but it's not just teachers. It's also parents. It, parents also went to school. So they also have, you know, 13, 14 years of experience in elementary and middle and high school. Um, and, and that can be challenging sometimes also because they, too, have a, a sense that they, that they ought to know, you know, how, how schools ought to run or how schools are best run for, to prepare their kids for the future when, when the truth of the matter is that schools may have to adapt and may have to change and may have to look a little different than, than the schools that they went to and the experiences that they had. And I find that the, that tension can often, can often get in the way. 
So do you think there's like an ideal model that, you know, because it sounds like all the teachers are coming with, you know, their own biases. Um, do you think there's like a better way, like more of a universal model that we could strive towards? You know, I, I don't know that there's one universal model. Um, in Kohelet, when we started, when it came to Kohelet, it was just a high school. And uh, we started an elementary school and middle school. Um, we call them Kohelet Yeshiva Lab School and Kohelet Yeshiva Middle School. And a big part of what we tried to do there was to return to first principles and sort of ask ourselves, what do we know about how children learn? And then how do we build out from there? And I think more than anything, it's, it's the questions that we need. It's more, more than it's the, the, the technique or the, you know, a particular approach. It's a set of universal questions that we need to be asking ourselves, which you know, starts with what, what do we know about how children learn? And we know a tremendous amount. We know a lot more today than we did you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly 30 years ago. Um, and I think it's that growth mindset, which by the way, is so much of what we want our kids to, you know, to, uh, to take on and to, you know, and, and, and to reflect. Um, and the best way to do that is for us to start and, and demonstrate it ourselves as ed- educators. So I think that that willingness to ask ourselves those hard questions about what do we know about how children learn and are the practices that we're using in the classroom best reflective of what we know about how learning works, not about how I learned um, or how I experienced learning, but what we know about how learning works. Right. Um, and I, I think if we get there, we, we can make our schools more reflective places. I think our best schools already are. I think they're deeply reflective with deep, deeply reflective educators. And the same too, it's true on the genetic study side also. Um, I think that if we can get there, then we're going to be in a much better place than where we are now. Reflective and openness to you know, the possibility that there may be other ways or better ways of, of doing things. But I, I don't believe that there's one fixed approach. I've seen too many schools that have kind of rallied around a particular methodology. And um, you know, Montessori is a great example. Maria Montessori was a brilliant educator. Um, and I think so much of what she had to offer is you know, still very deeply relevant uh, for our children. But it's, you, you can go into Montessori schools today, and too many of the educators, all they know is the Montessori manual. Um, they don't know anything about the theory that's behind it. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And if you don't know why, then you can't really adapt you know, to things as they change or to the particular needs of the students that may be, that may be in front of you. Um, so I don't think that there's one methodology. I think that uh, there's a universal set of questions that we all, all ought to all be asking ourselves. That makes sense. So, so you said you, the, the biggest challenge is is just having to deal with teachers that come in with uh, various preconceived notions. I think it's teachers and parents. Right, right. So how do you stay motivated? <laughs> I stay motivated by learning. Um, I stay <laughs> motivated by learning learning myself. Um, and you and mean honestly, like, like your own personal learning plan or like learning about can, the, can, yeah, by continuously, continuously learning new things myself and right. by continuously pushing myself to see things differently than I have before. Um, but at, at the same time, you reach, when you reach a certain stage in your career as an educator, the, the greatest motivation comes from seeing where your students land up. You know, mm-hmm. and and because we were saying before, like the day to day is can be it can be a real grind, and 
anybody who was in education over the past you know year and a half. I mean that the grind just became something otherworldly. Um, wow! You know that it just it was unlike anything we, any of us have ever experienced before. Um, but when you see when when your students come back when they you know when they send that email to you you know ten years ten years later when you run into them you go to their wedding you just you know and they, and and they reach out to you and they say you know you had you had a real impact on me you you really you made a difference and that's how we all do it you know we certainly don't do it we don't do it for the paycheck we don't do it for the glory you know we do it to make a difference and and that ought to be you know that that's what keeps me going is uh, seeing those students and seeing where they've where they've come and what they've accomplished and and i think that's true about that many of my colleagues as well wow yeah it sounds like it takes a really special person to to do it you know it does indeed thankfully there are there are many there are many out there and they deserve all the credit in the world yes indeed so what advice would you give to new educators who are just beginning their journeys in the field? Um, I, I would say, as I said before, I would say always be a learner. Um, and uh, I would say when you're starting out, the most important thing you should be looking for in that first job. And I know it's hard because, you know, you don't always have that much flexibility in terms of where to take that first job. But the most important thing you can be looking for is what kind of growth environment am I going into? What kind of mentorship are they going to offer? I mean, we know that the statistics are really clear, you know, that most most people who leave the teaching field leave within their first, you know, um, uh, two to three years on the job. And the vast majority of them, it's because they didn't get proper mentorship support uh, appreciation that they needed and, and ability to make some mistakes and learn from them in those first couple of years. So mm. I, I would, you know, if you look, if you're getting that first job, ask them what kind of, you know, what kind of teacher mentor, mentorship do you have in, in place? What kind of support systems are there for, you know, for, um, beginning teachers and take advantage of them, you know, create a space where it's okay to ask questions, to admit fears, um, to, for somebody, a pair of eyes to come into your classroom and, and be able to tell you what, what they're seeing in a non-judgmental, non-evaluative way, because that's, that's how we get better. And it's not always so easy, but, but that's how we get better. Interesting. So would you say some of the best educators are like more senior? typically the ones that stick with it and are lifelong learners and are constantly improving on themselves. Like they tend to be older. I think that's true. I think there are, there are some great dynamic young educators as well who have you know a, a tremendous amount of raw talent. Um, but I think what you see sometimes with those teachers is that, you know, they're great with a particular class and then they, you know, a, a year or two later, they find themselves with a different kind of class and really a little bit, uh, you know, kind of a fish out of water because this group's a lot more difficult, you know, than the group that they had the year before, the year before that. And I think the more senior you become, the more you are able, you know, you've seen different types of kids already. You've seen different, you've dealt with different kinds of parents. Um, and so you're, you've got more tools on your tool belt and, and greater ability to um, give a particular class what it needs. Um, so I think there's a, I think there are great, 
talented young teachers out there as well. I think that your master teachers are those who have been around for a little while and um, and really know you know 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 their way around the classroom, but also know their way around students. And I think right. that comes with time. Okay, so it, it sounds like we've identified there's you know the problem with teaching about God in uh, in Jewish education. Um, how can we help students build a proper Torah foundation? Um, I think that, you know, it happens in a, in, in a few different ways, but, but, you know, I think, you know, when you say Torah foundation, it's, it's a, you know, it's kind of an amorphous term or it means different things to different people. Um, you know, Torah foundation could mean, you know, how do we give them the skill set that they're going to need in order to work their way through the great texts of, of our tradition, our Masora? And, and that, that honestly requires a tremendous amount of time. And it's, um, it's not very easy, you know, to master the, the text skills. And it's not just modern Hebrew, it's biblical Hebrew, and then it's Mishnaic Hebrew, and then it's Aramaic. And uh, um, it's really, it's really not that, not that easy. Um, but, but there's another piece, right, which is how do we give them the love? How do we give them the desire to, to want to, to continue to grow, to continue to teach? You know, I mentioned earlier that one of my one of my um, the educators that I, I really look up to is this teacher, that music teacher that we had with Kohelet, and his his approach is he starts at the end, whereas most music teachers, you know, will start you know, with some basic you know they'll technique they'll you know they'll teach you how to read you know notes and and keep time. Um, Sheridan, as he's known, um, starts at the end. He asks you what what instrument. You know, have you always wanted to play? And uh, it doesn't matter what instrument you answer, he will take it and he'll put it in your hand. And he'll teach you three chords. And then he'll put you together with, you know, two other instruments, three other instruments, and he'll show you the sheer joy in making music together. And once you have that, once you have that desire and that joy, you see what it can be. That then propels the student to want to learn the theory, to want to learn the proper technique, because they see, you know, ultimately what it can produce. And I think much of that is true around Torah as well, that if, if we get bogged down in kind of the incremental steps towards getting to, you know, our building this skill set or, you know, laying those foundations, but without giving kids a taste of the beauty and the joy that, that it all, you know, culminates in, I think we lose too many of them along the way. So I think we need to be doing much of the, you know, much of the end at the beginning as well. So as much as it's important to, to be building that skill set, I think we need to be looking for opportunities to show kids why this matters, to show them the beauty in it, to show them what we find beautiful and inspirational in a Torah lifestyle, in Torah learning. Um, and if we can do that, you know, then they'll feel, they'll, they'll create that sort of self-generated desire to build those skills and to keep at it in the journey right, when they know where it's ultimately headed toward. Yeah, yeah, that's genius. That's yeah. really powerful. It almost reminds me of, we back in the day when I used to teach Aleph Bet and 
would have the letters, make them out of cookies or cake and put the honey on it and have the kids exactly. taste it. That's hmm. uh, powerful. Yeah, g- great answer to one of our more uh, controversial questions. <laughs> you mentioned uh, different challenges. Uh, you mentioned COVID, you know, was a obviously a big one. We're still in it. Um, what does uh, successful Jewish education in the future look like to you? Well, I, I definitely think that COVID, and people talk about COVID as being an accelerator. I think it's accelerated all sorts of different changes um, that are going to impact uh, education as a whole, Jewish education in particular. Um, but uh, you know, I think that... Uh, it's also de- It's also decelerated some of the learning, right? I mean, the kids are suffering. It's the younger ones, especially, right? Kids are suffering. Um, Depending on where, you know, what what experience your kid has had, if they they did spend a a great deal of time last year on distance, you know, in distance learning, then yes, they probably did, you know, lose academically quite a bit. If they were in person, I mean, our school was was open the entire year, um, you know, with two weeks that we had, that we, you know, we, we were forced to close. Um, but but we lost socially, I think, over the course of the course of last year, um, even when we were even when we were open and in person. So there definitely has been, you know, loss for sure. Um, <clears throat> But I think that I think certain changes, you know, that were already in the, you know, in the work. So, for example, like in the world of, of education as a whole, you know, the the way in which um, the number of colleges, universities that have gone test optional, they had to go test optional. Um, I, that's not coming back. I don't think that uh, those schools are ever going to go back to requiring SATs and ACTs. Um, and I think it's just going to be more and more schools that are, are going to offer a, a test optional path. And I think that's going to have a triple down effect into our high schools and middle schools where finally we'll be moving away from, you know, the, the, the over-focus on standardized testing and into areas of more meaningful assessment. Um, and the other place where I think things are, have changed and I don't think they're going back. And I know that, that, that people have a visceral reaction to this now when I say it, but but I think distance learning is here to stay. Um, I know nobody wants it. And uh, many schools I know this year are sort of cracking down on, uh, you know, the, the ability of students um, because it was extremely hard on our teachers. And, and, and you have requiring teachers to, to teach to two different groups every single day, you know, um, it, you know, those at home and those in the class all at the same time is, is just way too much to ask of them. But at the same time, the technology has gotten much better and our teacher's ability to teach from a distance has gotten much better. And I think we're going to find an equilibrium. I think we're going to find a place where we can actually use it quite well to enrich our kids' education. So that, that could be you know, solving the, the Hebrew language crisis, you know, teacher crisis, which we have across the board in American schools today. You know, by by really finding effective ways for teachers in Israel to teach to teach our students here, um, it may be you know that we that we're able to give many more options and diversity to our kids and the experience they can have by harnessing um, uh, you know d- distance learning in various in, in various effective and successful ways. But I don't think it's 
I think it's here. I don't think it's going. I don't think it's um, going anywhere anytime soon. So I think the two schools of the future are ones that are going to, to you're going to see far more choice. Um, that we're going to begin harnessing some of these some of these options. Um, and you know, I hopefully hopefully on the Judaics study side, you know, it's uh, it, it's one. These are schools that are going to. Um, you know, recognize and understand the, the, the importance of, of experience and, and, and joy, um, and, and give kids a sense of meaning and purpose by the time they graduate, not just a set of, a set of skills. Right. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to get your, uh, your perspective on the cost of Jewish education. I mean, do you think there's any way to, uh, lower the cost of tuition, but also increase the compensation for especially the good educators? Funny, it took, it took this long for that to come up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, yeah, but the, the cost of education has, is, is a very, very significant challenge. And um, not one that has easy answers. Um, my answer to your question is no. I don't think there's a way to bring the cost of education down. Um, in fact, I think that I don't think that there's much waste that's going on in any of our schools. Um, I don't think that you know the attempts to replace teachers with distance learning um, have been successful at all. Um, I I think that you know some of the the attempts to create sort of less, no frills schools also haven't been terribly ter- terribly um, successful. The cost of education is a very high one, and um, you know there's there's good reason for it. In in most industries, there have been technologies that have come about that have allowed us to um, be more productive with less manpower, and and you need to do that in order to keep up with inflation. And education, we have not managed to do that. We still takes one teacher you know, to educate 20 kids, 15 kids, depending on the, the age of the kids. And that's, and yet, you know, every, the cost of everything else has gone up and we haven't, and that model is still the model that we are using. And I don't really see another one um, and anytime in the near future. And so it's expensive. It's, it's extremely expensive. And our expectation of what a great education is and where our kids are headed it has only increased over the years, and right. um, you know we're not going to start taking away the the support systems that we're giving for you know for our our kids who need support in various areas, whether that's social, emotional, or academic. Um, the needs, you know, the, the the demands on the time of our administrators is is only increasing, and it's not it's not getting any smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we are looking for, you know, if you, I don't know if you've ever sat on a, uh, on a head of school search committee, but if you listen to what these search committees are looking for in their heads of school, I mean, these are, these are people who have, you know, every qualification under the sun. Um, and that, that's not, that's not cheap. So mm-hmm. I don't think that the cost is going to go down. What I do think though, is I think that there is a tremendous amount of wealth in the Jewish community. Thank God we are in a place of, um, you know, tremendous 
success, um, tremendous, you know, opportunities for funders to come and and give meaningful dollars to schools. And there are certain examples of it, and there aren't enough. And then by meaningful dollars, I mean there are people out there who can write seven-figure checks and eight-figure checks. And those are really the people. I'm not talking about the same family who's already trying to pay you know, four yeshiva day school tuitions and asking them for another $10,000, $15,000 on top of that. That's not the kind of fundraising I'm talking about. We do that, and the people who do that are, are really giving sacrificially, and I have all the respect in the world for them. But there are, there are a select few people out there, and more than we think, more people than we think, who have tremendous capacity. Um, and what we need to do is to help those people understand the importance of Jewish education and the importance of directing their philanthropy towards Jewish education. You know, I've, I've, I've written about this and often pointed out that there are, to the best of my knowledge, only two models of education anywhere in the world. There's a pay-for-play model where everybody pays in order to go to the school, right? Or there's a subsidized model where there's something, whether usually it's the government or it could be the Catholic Church, you know, that is subsidizing the education and therefore it need not be pay-for-play. We in the Jewish educational world are trying to do something that doesn't exist anyplace else. We, we're not subsidized and yet we're not pay-for-play. We want to grant everybody a Jewish education, but there's nobody backing us. Right, to uh, make that to to make that happen, and while there's promising signs, you know we've moved in the right direction in terms of getting go- government support for our day school. There's more work to be done there, but but I don't think we can depend on that. I think that we need to rally our our high net worth individuals in our community, and those who have been giving and encourage them to give more. Those who have you know have looked elsewhere to you know to give them philanthropic dollars and convince them that Jewish education is really the most important thing they could be doing with their money. So what would that look like? Would that entail these high net worth individuals donating to pay tuition for a certain amount of children, students? How would that work? The best thing that they could do, and often high net worth individuals are a little reluctant to give in this way, but the best thing they could do is give to endowment okay. and then allow the school to use you know, the um, you know what they take from that endowment to offset scholarships, and then yes, and then those families will be able to will be able to come. If if they can't do that, then those you know then those those checks should go directly towards funding scholarships. No, the best thing we could be doing is so that schools don't become you know so dependent on these funders. So the, the funder decides that they you know they're having a bad day or they didn't like their kids' homeless class. You know now they're go now they're leaving and they're going to another school. The the the, the best thing they you know that we could do with their money is to is to build endowments which are, are there in perpetuity um again it takes more money to do it that way but it's it, it's most responsible way to do it from a fiduciary perspective right right but that that is sort of what i was going to ask about because i i was kind of thinking along the lines where more of the dollars should flow to the really talented educators but Part of the conundrum, I guess, is that you said, you know, there's only a certain ratio that each, you know, the ratio of teacher to student. How can, you know, we fix that? Or do you even agree with me? Maybe, maybe, maybe there isn't a problem there. Oh, no, I think it's absolutely a problem with the way in which we pay our teachers or don't pay our teachers is a better, uh, better description of it. 
No, for for sure. So again, I, I think that these high net worth individuals have the capacity to help to help offset that in you know whole, you know whole array of, of ways. Yeah, there's no there is no question about it that our our educators are are underpaid and and that there's a tremendous um, shortage of great teachers because <laughs> you can't support a family. And right. by going into education, I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. And it, it should, we as a community should be ashamed of the fact. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times at Kohelet that I had a teaching couple who, who applied to our school and we would literally sit around and ask ourselves, can they possibly afford to live in our community on two teacher salaries? Mm. And, wow. and that's, it's just, it's it, what a sad commentary, right? The people right. who are giving their lives to educate our children and we don't pay them enough to, for, for basics, for just, you know, it, the only way we can do it is if one of their spouses happens to be a lawyer, right, or a doctor. And then, you know, then, then they can go into education. But, but two people who are dedicated to education um, can't do it. And, and the other thing you find is that we have teachers who are racing out of, cla- of the classroom to administrative positions right. because those pay, right? And then we're losing them from the classroom. And right. sometimes they're not even fit to be administrators. They're, they were great in the classroom, which is where they should be. But we understand why they're moving up and out because they need to put food on the table. They, they uh-huh. need to pay. They want need to pay for their own children's education. And they can't do it on a teacher's salary. And right. it's so sad that we need good educators. It's, it's really sad. It is indeed. All right. Well, it sounds like we all agree that the uh, there's work to do here. There is indeed quite a bit of it. <laughs> yeah. Please let us know, you know, how we can help, and we're going to do some thinking too, and and maybe we'll get back to you with some ideas of our own. And that's one of the right. reasons we started this podcast too, because we wanted to get the conversation flowing amongst educators and kind of figure out, especially during COVID, where are we all, and what's going on, what can we do better, and. Um, so we're really grateful that you took the time to speak with us tonight. And yeah, we wish, wish you lots of uh, you know bracha hatslacha with uh, with what you're doing over there and with your your new school and your projects and 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 everything else that's going on right now in these challenging times. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Um, okay. We're good. We may have to circle back for another episode, though. We want there's we have some follow up questions. <laughs> we just don't have. I'd time. be happy to. <laughs> All right, Rabbi, thank you so much. All the best. My pleasure.